and the answer is to keep it. You believe it when you find something screaming across your mind. Green slime. Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love to get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me this week is Dan Fraga. Now, Dan is a member of Exhumed Films, a foursome from the New Jersey and Philadelphia area who have been putting on genre screenings for about the last uh, quarter decade, let's say. You know, for a town like Philadelphia, it's a little bit different than Austin, where Austin has, you know, the Austin Film Society, Alamo Draft House, uh, and this collection of, of working DIY film programmers who have been uh, putting on screenings for years and years. You know, Philadelphia doesn't really have that scene. And Exhumed Films did what any great DIY group does. They created their own scene. Since about the late 90s, they've been putting on horror, exploitation, science fiction, double, triple features, all-night movie marathons, and then for about the last uh, 14 years, they've been putting on the 24-hour horror-thon, which, if you've never attended, is one of the greatest cinematic events in the history of film. It's held annually, or it was held annually, around the October uh, Halloween season, when from Saturday to Sunday, for 24 hours, they would roll 13 movies, roughly, that were all played on 35mm or 16mm prints. They're amazing. Now, Exhumed is made up of four guys. Dan, Harry Guero, Jesse Nelson, and Joseph Gervaisi. All of them have a very unique flair and bring a distinct voice to the group themselves, but Dan has always acted kind of as the stand-in MC for the group, bringing his love of kaiju films, horror movies, slashers, and everything in between to the mic. And if you've ever been to it, Exhumed Film Shows, you know how, let's say, colorful Dan's opening announcements can be. He's a great film mind. He's a guy who you would love to just sit down and have a beer with and just talk movies about. And that's kind of what we did for uh, the next hour or so. As we sat down, talked about the history of Exhumed Films, what it meant to me personally as somebody who's been going to their movies since about the late 90s, early 2000s. And just how their influence has kind of reached beyond the borders of the New, the New Jersey, Philadelphia, New York area. But enough from he. Here's Dan Fraga from Exhumed Films talking all things genre. How is the uh, Northeast? I, it's snowy, but much better than you guys for, for once. I mean, well, I wouldn't have think that Texas would, be, <laughs> Texas would be having a worse winter than Jersey and Philly, but so be it. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's the first time since moving here during this time of the year where I'm not, like, you know what? I actually miss the East Coast. <laughs> weird. <laughs> it's it's going to be 52 tomorrow, so that's not bad. Dude, it's 80 degrees today. Right, and I, I saw that's that's insane. Yeah. That you would have that shift, but, you know, good thing global warming is not a real concern. No, no, no. It's global warming. 
And I guess you're the wrong person to talk to, but I was talking to somebody else, I think actually Phil Nobile about this today to where it was like, the one thing that's driving me completely bonkers lately are the, the theater partisans is what I call them. The people who are like rushing to get people to go back to movies and theaters. And I'm like, why? Like, I'm fine. Like I can just watch movies at home and not die. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I really miss going to movie theaters, but I still, I, I can't do it. And like, I know some friends have done, it. I know like Mike Gingold has posted from going to movie theaters and such. I'm just like, I, I just can't do it. And, yeah, uh, I went. You know, I went and saw Tenet. Okay, just as like a test, like at the end of summer, and it was one of those things where it was like, well, things have calmed down. Uh, nobody's right. going yet, so if you go in the afternoon, maybe, uh, you know, you you'll feel a little more safe. So me and my buddy went and sat there and watched, and we were the only two people in this movie watching it on seventy millimeter. Wow. And like, we still like watched, looked at each other and I was like, this is fucking weird, man. (laughs) Right. That's the thing. It's like, I don't want to, you know, it's kind of the same thing in that uh, my family were big uh, Disney world people. And we've got like the Disney timeshare and we would go, you know, once a year, twice a year. And we have the ability to go back now, but I'm just like, I just don't want to because I I believe I'd probably be safe, but I don't want it to be that weird. Like, I don't want, to be in a place that I enjoy and feel creeped out. Yeah, sure. It's like, it's that weird, almost like nostalgia element of like, I want the last memory I have of this place that I love to be good and not to be painted by like, people are in masks, possibly coughing. I can't eat popcorn. (laughs) Like, maybe I have COVID, which is weird. So Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Like just see Goofy where, walking around wearing a COVID mask. And you're like, you know what? This just isn't the same. <laughs> no, no, I agree. It's it's unsettling. So, and I feel the same way about movies. Like I don't really want to be in a movie theater, even if I feel like it's safe, wearing a mask, and it's just and right and to have like three people there. You know, if if again, I have three people in my living room. I could have that with my yeah. kids. I don't. For me, the 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 part of going to a movie theater which is fun is again, like I know, you know, not going to the multiplex, but going to, you know, uh, going to an Alamo draft house or going to an exhumed show or something where you're seeing stuff with people that are like-minded and like, that's the fun part of me going to a movie. Me sitting in a theater by myself is never fun or with two other people is never going to be fun. So. Yeah. It was the, it was the strangest part of doing Sundance this year. To where it's mm-hmm. like I watched 24 movies or whatever, but I watched it from my living room, which was cool. But at the same time, you're like, this is fucking weird. Like I can't yeah. talk to anybody about this. Like I can right. go on to Twitter and see what people are saying, but that just annoys me for the most part. Um, yeah. So anyway, anyway. exhumed. <laughs> yes. Are we recording all this, by the way? Is this oh, all yeah. like? Oh but, geez. This is just rant. Like. But this is kind of how it goes. Like, it's just, there's not a whole lot of structure to it. Like, I just like interviewing people and letting it go for a little bit. Okay. Uh, Well, I'm going to ask something at the outset. Um, The last time I was interviewed for a podcast was years ago. It was the the Cinepunks guys. I'm sure you know Liam and Josh from Philadelphia. And after the 
recording, I, I, I listened to the episode where they posted it, and I was horrified to notice that I used the interruptive phrase, you know, Y apostrophe K-N-O-W, constantly. Yeah. The way some people say um or uh or like, I say you know. Yeah. So if in the midst of conversation, you notice me really, really using you know a lot, please stop me because I don't want to sound like an idiot on your podcast. <laughs> well, I, I've had to go through with our early episodes. I, I noticed like listening back to them and editing them. I'll, I make this terrible noise when I'm like mm. thinking of something I go, uh, and like you'll see, and like I've even no, like figured out how to notice the sound wave when I'm editing. Sure. I'm like there it is. There's, you need to see it. There's the shit in my throat right there, <laughs> like where I sound like just a total moron. Right. <laughs> no, totally. I, that was the, that. I think that was the last podcast I heard you on was Liam's podcast. Liam's yeah, I, buddy. I, I don't do a lot of podcast stuff. I don't get a lot of uh, requests, so I was flattered that you asked. Yeah, well, that's kind of what, I mean, it's it's one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk to you is that, you know, the whole podcast is about cult cinema, for lack of a better term, and, and secret handshake movies and uh, mm-hmm. how you essentially came to them. And, like, for me, it's weird. For years, I always, I have referenced Exhumed more times than I can possibly count because... For me, growing up in the Northeast, you guys were the equivalent of like the Quentin, the old Quentin Tarantino quote of like, when he would talk about video archive as being like, I didn't go to film, I didn't go to film school, I went to films. And like, you guys were a vital part of my like education. Like there wouldn't be a podcast, there wouldn't be me writing for Birth Movies, Death or Fangoria or anywhere else because like, if I hadn't seen, I, I believe, like somebody talking about your screenings back in the late nineties and like a, on like a message board and being like, right. what, what, yeah. are, what is this? What are these people talking about? And then going and seeing them. But I mean, for the folks who don't know, explain what exhumed films is because I've explained it a million times and referenced it. So you, you tell me. Sure. I, I've probably explained it as many, if not more times, but I'll give the, the short non-boring version as best I can. So Exhumed Films is a group of four friends. There are four of us who have been together now doing this for, this is our 24th year. It'll be 24 years in October of 2021. Our first show is in 1997. And it came from, we're four friends. We, a couple of us went to school together, actually like in high school and became friendly there. We're, we're different ages, but we were within a couple years of each other and we kind of found each other in that I heard this guy likes weird movies and I would reach out to him talking and say, Hey, I heard you like this movie. Have you ever seen this one? And we became friends. And then, so the four members, just so for your audience's sake are myself, my name is Dan and my friends and partners are Harry Guerrero and Joseph Gervaisi and Jesse Nelson. And Harry and Jesse and I all grew up in the same town and went to the same school. And we actually all worked together at the same video store. We worked at a West Coast video in the town where we lived. It was a very small town, suburban New Jersey. (laughs) Yep. God bless West Coast video. And I know you yourself are a big video store uh, guy. So that, that was kind of the genesis of where we 
started coming up with the idea. The fourth member, Joseph, I was friendly with, and I knew from, I was into the, the hardcore and punk rock scene in Philly and South Jersey. And Joseph was very big in, in, in that. And we became friends and he also had similar interests in film. So I kind of said, you need to meet my friends, Jesse and Harry. At any rate, the four of us would go over each other's houses and watch movies on VHS, video search of Miami. If you remember, you would back before DVD, back before official releases of all this stuff, you would try to find bootlegs that you'd pay like $30 for a crappy third generation VHS. And we would spend all of our money on this stuff and we would watch it at the video store, we'd watch it at people's houses. But we kept saying, wouldn't it be great if somebody was showing these movies on a screen? If we could actually go and watch the original film prints uh, of these movies. Because at that time, I know it sounds strange now, but back in the mid to late 90s, nobody was really doing that. There wasn't an Alamo draft house yet. Or Alamo started around the same time we did, yeah. but they were obviously at that point just one theater. And on the East Coast, there were every now and then there would be a film retrospective in Philly. The International House would every now and then show an artsy sort of horror movie. They would show a Klaus Kinski's Nosferatu, but no one was really showing really crappy horror movies and obscure stuff that we wanted to watch. And it got to the point where we figured, well, maybe we can do it. If no one's doing this, let's see what we can figure out. And we found a local movie theater who was willing to rent the theater space to us after their normal showtime. This was an old single screen movie house back when you could still go to those in suburban New Jersey. Was this their the Harwin? It was the Harwin Theater, right. Which was the town over from where we grew up. And I saw so many, I saw aliens there as a kid. I saw King Kong, the Dino De Laurentiis. So I knew the theater well. I had actually done for years and years, they had done Rocky Horror Picture Show there. And I was part of the cast at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I knew the owners pretty well. And we went to them and said, listen, we have this idea. We want to show these movies. I don't know if we can find the movies. I don't know if anybody's going to come but could you cut us a deal and we're going to try it? And they cut us a deal. And then we managed to get in touch with uh, Bob Murawski and Sage Stallone from Grindhouse Releasing. And they had, we said, we, we know you guys are putting stuff out. And this was pretty much in the early days of Grindhouse. You're putting stuff out on VHS. Do you happen to have any film prints? And if so, could we rent them from you? And they came back and said, yeah, we've got all these movies. We have a couple. How about, we said, do you have any Italian horror? They said, we've got Prince of the Gates of Hell and Zombie, Lucio Fulci. And we just lost our minds. Like, holy <laughs> shit. You've got film prints. And then we went to the Harwin and we said, listen, we've got two movies. Can we do a double feature? And they cut us a deal and said, yeah. And then we said, that's it. We're showing these movies. It wound up costing us each. And this was, I was just out of college. Harry was maybe just out of high school. Um, none of us had very much money. I think it cost us each if we threw the whole thing was 600 bucks, if we threw in $600 total, so 150 bucks each, we could rent the movies, rent the theater, and we'll see what happens. And maybe nobody shows up and maybe they do, but if they don't, we each paid 150 bucks to watch these two movies we love on film in a movie theater. And long story short, as we did it, people showed up, it went very well, we made a profit and we said, we should try this again. And we did it a couple months later and that went well. And then it, we just kept doing it. And over the course of time, it really became a pretty successful undertaking. So 
it grew and grew from double features to triple features to marathons and it, it evolved into probably our biggest show being the the 24-hour horathon we would do a 24-hour movie marathon in philadelphia as i know you know um we did that for what 13 years i think yeah um so over the course of time dvd changed and streaming came about and a lot of the stuff that we started showing initially you could find it anywhere you could go online now and see every movie that you would ever want to see but back in 1997 you couldn't and i think that was where we sort of provided a a resource for people that wasn't available at that time dvd didn't exist yet you couldn't find anything obscure on vhs but you could find a movie of it you could find a film print miraculously and if someone was willing to show it to you like we were i think we were able to introduce people to a lot of strange things that they otherwise wouldn't have come across yeah and then the um the thing that you bring up too is that uh you and joseph coming from kind of the punk and hardcore scene too is that there was a total diy kind of ethos to it right down to the flyers that you guys used to make um that i would collect and when i went to college i actually taped a whole bunch of them together and had them <laughs> on my my dorm room wall for stuff wow. like and then I, I would have friends who would come over or sometimes girls you know who would look at it and be like what is farewell uncle tom and you're like hold on <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> date night yeah this is a this is a tough conversation do you just want to be <laughs> <laughs> like, right but um can you talk a little bit about, because you, you bring up the Harwin, because that was what, Haddonfield, New Jersey, correct? Uh, no. Um, the Harwin was Mount Ephraim, New Jersey. It. Yeah. Mount Ephraim, which I, Harry and Jesse and I grew up in Audubon, New Jersey. Mount Ephraim was literally the, the next town over. So within, you know, there I just said, you know, within about a mile's walking distance and or driving distance obviously when i was a kid we had to walk to the harwin so it was walkable you could you could go to the movies by and and joseph is i met joseph at the harwin because before even going to philly punk rock shows the harwin was one of those theaters that they were willing to pretty much do anything rocky hard no one was showing rocky hard at that point but yeah sure we'll do it we'll let people throw toilet paper and rice and we'll just clean the theater every sunday morning and joseph was actually programming punk rock shows at the Harwin. There were people slam dancing in the aisles and in the little space in, in front of the, the seats. The Harwin built a stage for Rocky Horror. Once Rocky Horror kind of took off and was being successful, they built a stage proscenium. So people would come to them and say, hey, can my band play here? So you would go to the Harwin on a Saturday afternoon and have like an all day punk rock show for five bucks and then go eat dinner and come back at midnight and have Rocky Horror. So it was really for a bunch of weirdo South Jersey kids. It, when I was in high school, it was really an epicenter for cool stuff. And I was very happy that, that it became the first home for Zoom films. Well, and it's a total um, kind of New Jersey and Philly vibe to it too because I tried to, I, again, try to describe not only these shows but sort of like what the music scene in Philly was like, because Austin's a big music town, they talk about right. it, but it's totally different. 
to where it's like in Philly and Westchester, like where I grew up, is that you would go to shows kind of like you described wherever. Like right. it would be church basements. They would be yep. rec halls. They would be uh, gymnasiums. Like, and the yeah, heart one of those places, like even, I'm not even sure if they still exist, but I remember R5 Productions, right. was one of the big DIY promoters. Like I would be like, oh yeah, I saw this band. I saw this band and I saw this band, like right out of college. And they'd be like, oh, where'd you see him at? And I'd be like, oh, the basement of the first Unitarian church. Unitarian church, sure. <laughs> R5 is now huge. They've got now, of course, with COVID, everything's kind of shut down, but they have, they've, they've gone from DIY to owning their own venues and being, I don't want to say multi-million, I don't know their finances, but being a really big deal in terms of Philly music scene. Yeah. But that, right, you're right in that that was sort of where we were coming from with that punk rock mentality of, if no one's going to do this, we're going to do it. Yeah. If I can't go to a club to see a show because I'm under 21, I'm going to have my own show. If no one's going to show these crazy movies, we're going to show these movies. And you're right. We would make our own. We did everything. We made our own flyers. We silk screened the T-shirts. We were the ones taking the tickets. We were the ones cleaning up the trash afterwards. It was very much. And we were young. It was early. I was in my early 20s. Harry was probably 19, 20. So it was very much like a punk rock show. And in fact, the the first the very first show we did, there was a lot of that sort of, that sort of punk rock energy. In fact, that was where we first realized, oh my God, we need to tell these people to shut up because the first show I was ready to sit down and watch zombie and gates of hell. And people were yelling and screaming and drinking and cracking jokes. And we actually stopped the movies. We're like, no, 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 no. This isn't that. This isn't, we're not diving off the stage. We're not, screaming at at the screen it's not rocky horror it's not a punk show we're watching these movies and we actually stopped the film and came on the mic and said if you don't shut up we're not running the movies <laughs> and we learned very early on that while we wanted to cultivate that sort of camaraderie and that sort of energy from the punk scene and and rocky horror we we wanted to show respect for the films as well and we wanted people to watch the films and and yes i always whenever we would announce make announcements for a show i would always say we want you to laugh we want you to cheer we want you to scream but we don't want you to take away from the experience of the movie yeah because there's a difference between um let's say passively interacting with a film and actively like mystery science theatering it um right. which was kind of because that was one of my favorite things is your announcements before the 24-hour uh, horror-thon is that there would always be that moment of like, listen, shut up and just hear me out for five seconds. Please don't talk over the movie. We will kick you out. <laughs> like, and, and I feel very strongly about that. I, I have no patience for when they say in the multiplexes, please put away your cell phone, and yet you know nothing will be done about it. Yeah, Again, I think it goes back to that punk rock mentality of if people were being assholes at shows, you kick them out. If people were dancing violently, if people were being racist, if people were being sexist, you would, as a group, you and your friends would say, you're fucked up, get out. Yeah. And I'm not afraid to do that. And that was what we tried to cultivate, that the movies are center stage. And yes, we want you to love them, enjoy them, but you're not above them. You're not better than them. And you shouldn't be, you're not 
funnier than the movies. You're not more entertaining than the movies. No one is here to hear your jokes or your comments. They're here for that. And please, like you said, I, I think pass, I don't know if passive is the right word, but I think be a receptive audience sure. rather than a distracting audience. Yeah, it's the whole, it, it, it's one of the things that honestly, like going to your guys' shows so early has kind of stuck with me for like years and years and years is that I've never, I've never developed a tolerance for, I guess, what I like to call ironic viewing when people watch something with the whole ethos of like it's so bad it's good or I'm gonna kind of riff on it and stuff and like I get it there's a market for that but that's not for me uh, sure. um, because of the very things that you're talking about too of like I don't like when people almost value themselves or like their jokes or whatever more than the art itself I agree 100 percent and I think think that I'm sort of on the fence and that I, I absolutely understand and can enjoy going into a movie that you know is going to be terrible and enjoying how terrible it is. But I get very frustrated when we'll show a movie that just happens to be made in 1972 and the fashion of 1972 is different. And the second a person comes on the screen in a wide collar lapel jacket, people burst out laughing. I'm like, what is funny about that? It was 1972. That's the way they dressed. And I think even that's an example of just how I'm insulated. Oh, I'm above this. I'm better than this. Mocking. Look at the way they look. Well, Jesus Christ. It was, it was the seventies. Everyone looked like that. Yeah. This, <laughs> and, and in some things deserve ridicule and laughter and other things are just, I, I feel like when you go to a serious film that just happens to be from a different era or uses different language or has different effects or whatever, when people just, derisively mock it and laugh at it you're missing so much of of, of the film itself and yeah. it it takes me right out of it so now who ran the projector at your original or like like showings so back in 97 when we started the harwin was obviously um 35 millimeter projection and that was that was really all there was. There wasn't digital projection at that point yeah. in time. So if, you know this. Everybody who went to the movies, you, you saw a movie on film. And the Harlem was fortunate in that they had two longtime projectionists, a guy named Norm and a guy named Luther. And Norm and Luther were old school. They had been there forever. They had been projectionists throughout the, throughout the area, throughout Jersey, throughout Philadelphia. And they were really good at what they did. And Harry basically said, show me how to do this. Yeah. And they taught Harry how to be a projectionist. And Harry got a job working part-time at the Harwin Theater as a projectionist. Now, Harry would never project our shows during an event because he wanted to be there and watch them. So it was usually either Norm or Luther in the booth. But another thing that really can't be underestimated is... And I, I'm sure I'll, I'll keep coming back to Harry throughout the interview here. Harry, for those of you who don't know from Exhumed is, who don't know Exhumed films, I should say, Harry is not just the member of Exhumed, but he's really the most important part of Exhumed because he has been the resource for so many of the films that, we, that we've shown. Harry really, once we started, took it upon himself to become a, a, a massive film collector and yeah. has probably one of the largest collections 
in the world. No joke, in the yeah. world. Oh, no, I've, 35 been to, millimeter film. I've, I've been to the garage house. And yeah. he, for people who don't know, he also has his own very small uh, boutique Blu-ray label, uh, Garage House Pictures, too. Mm -hmm. They put out Ninja Busters, some trailer stuff, and I know I'm for eight, the one Andy Milligan movie you guys uh, Monstrosity. Yeah. Andy Milligan. And the weird, he put out two Milligan, The Weirdo and Monstrosity. Yeah. Right. And Garage House refers to Harry built a movie theater in his garage. It's a yeah. small, basically eight person screening room. But so my point is, if Harry hadn't learned from the projectionist at the time, it, it might have changed everything because of the fact that he began collecting. There's no sense in collecting movies if you don't know how to show them, if you don't have the equipment to run them. So this led to Harry becoming an expert projectionist and then becoming knowledgeable enough to build his own theater. And Harry, Harry's an amazing guy. Pretty much anything he sets his mind to do, he figures out how to do it. If I don't know how to do it, I'll figure it out. Yeah. So he figured out how to become a projectionist, how to build a movie theater, how to project 3D when no one else could. Because that's... So, it's the other thing that's kind of worth noting for the, the folks who aren't 100% familiar with you guys is that like, this isn't your vocation. This is like the, the side hustle, the thing that you guys do because you're a teacher, Harry's a, a pipe fitter. That's correct. Yeah. And then like Joseph and Jesse run a Diabolic DVD. Um, correct. One of the biggest Blu-ray importers in the world. But it's also one of the reasons their business was one of the reasons I had the idea to bring you guys on is because the, the week this episode will air is the same week we're doing battle Royale. And it's mm -hmm. because of you guys <laughs> that I ever saw battle Royale for the first time, because it was back in the day before diabolic was online and this huge retailer. Now that it's, it's kind of become, um, they sold more or less shadily sourced bootlegs um so, you know I'm, VC, vcds and yeah. you know like yeah. like things you couldn't find like i remember missing high tension at the philly film fest when it played for the first time and i found like the korean import disc on like one of their tables and but battle sure. royale was one of those discs because i'll never forget buying that dvd and going home with my buddy, Tony, who I used to go to, to all your shows with, and we got so high that we couldn't <laughs> figure out how to turn the subtitles on the, the, the Battle Royale disc. So we just watched the first hour until we essentially passed out because we were like, this is all in fucking Japanese. What are we doing? We shouldn't have smoked all this weed. <laughs> That's awesome. But that's one of the reasons, again, that I wanted to bring you guys on is because not only were you showing things, but kind of like you said, is that this was back in the days where like secret handshake films were exactly that. Like mm -hmm. you had to know somebody who knew how to see it or like they ran a boot an online like quote unquote bootleg site. Or like for me, it was going to your shows and seeing both the movies on the big screen and buying stuff from those early tables, which were literally fold out tables sure. with just imported DVDs on there. And you would be like, oh shit, Battle Royale. This is like something I've heard about for years. I've just never gotten able to, you know, it's not like now where you have Shudder and you can right. log on and you're like, Cannibal Holocaust? Fuck yeah. Right. right. <laughs> So, yeah, so much has changed in 20, 
for 25 years. And you're right. Um, I think a big part of definitely an idea I'll come back to or a theme that we'll probably come back to repeatedly is that like the punk rock scene, when I would, when I was a kid, we would go to punk rock shows, you would go to buy, you would go to see the bands, but there would also be seven inches and there would be people selling merch t-shirts and patches and whatever else. So when we started our shows, it was that same mentality of, all right, well, here's our Zoom merch, here's t-shirts and here's before DVD, here's bootleg VHS. We made a copy of this crazy video that we found and just really it was more to get it out there to, to let people see this other weird stuff than to, to really profit from it. Oh, yeah. And now it, it's, it's both great that you can access anything anywhere at any time that you'd ever want to see, but it's also a little bit less fun. I think there was a, a certain joy to stumbling across something in the same way that I can listen to every band or album or song that I'd ever want to listen to but it's not as much fun as stumbling across the vinyl copy in, in the record store. So I both appreciate and enjoy and benefit from the whole birth of streaming technology, but I also, to a sense, I, I, I don't want to say regret it, but I, I, I definitely long for, you know, cranky old man, the, the good old days of you had to sort of work really hard to see the things that you wanted to see or yeah. find the stuff you wanted to find. There was the, the crate digging effort that kind of mm -hmm. went into it. I've always said that being in Exhumed Films is kind of like being an archaeologist because, and this part of, is true even till today, because we don't show anything digitally. Everything that we do, well, I'll qualify that. There have been times when we have shown a few digital projections of things, but only generally because it's not possible to get a, a film version of it. Yeah, because you guys premiered an Australian movie at the one two thousand, uh, the one twenty four hour fest, the dead, the, the dead, right? It was a Australian zombie film, right? And that was, I, I liked the movie. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was pretty decent, and right, that was digital. And so, for your audience who doesn't know us, we generally over the course of twenty four years, even though we have the capacity to do everything digitally, we kind of have focused solely on. 35 millimeter because part of it is that's our roots. That's where we came from. That's our love. But also because I think there's more of a challenge to it. Anybody could be a film programmer and put a DVD and a projector together and, and show a movie on a, a bar room wall or something. And to me, there's no challenge or there's no joy in that, but to, to seek out a film and to find it and to, to get it on, on, on 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter, when you thought, I, I, I never in my life thought we'd find this movie, to find it. It's like finding the well, you know, the well of the souls and the Ark of the Covenant. It's, I can't believe we've got this after all these years. One of my favorite, favorite horror movies of all time, and the holy grail of films for us, is Hellraiser 2, yeah. Hellbound. I love that movie. And we've never, ever, ever shown it because we can't find a print of it. I could show it tomorrow, I mean, if, you know, if there wasn't a pandemic, you know what I mean? You could show it instantly digitally and it would look beautiful, but we've never shown it because I won't, we're not going to show it until we can find it on film. And I'd rather have a, which admittedly is perhaps paradoxical. I'd rather have a rickety scratched print of this movie than show you a pristine 4k transfer because that takes no work at all. There's no effort 
to put that movie on the screen. But to show you this artifact takes time, takes money, takes investment, takes 24 years worth of, of effort. And that to me is part of the joy of the Zoom show is you're really seeing something you can't see anywhere else. Maybe it doesn't look as pretty as this other one that anybody could show you, but you've never seen this. Or if you have, you haven't seen it in 30 years or more. Yeah. And you certainly haven't seen it this way in this. Right. Format. Yeah. Correct. But uh, it's like, I, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you later, because I remember back when Eric Bressler ran the one um, film festival, you guys showed the freak maker in, right. at, at the, the, the mausoleum at cinema. Correct. No, what is that called? The Philomoka. Philomoka. That's it. Um, and that was one of the questions you got kind of during your Q and a after, cause I believe that was like your 10th or 15th year, like anniversary or something like that. There was something, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some anniversary, um, I guess. But I remember watching you guys at that, that was still the, the answer was that it was Hellraiser 2, which blew my mind that you just can't find a print of Hellraiser 2. <laughs> you would think of all the movies we've shown, we've shown some really, really, for Christ's sake, we showed the fucking, Board excuse out. my language, Boarding House, we showed Luigi Cozzi's Italian dub of Godzilla. How Luigi's awesome was that? It, like, it, again, insane. Insane that I know that, that, that exists. I know guy. So, like, yeah. like, seeing that, like, I couldn't believe that you, you guys showed that because that was the last 24-hour-thon. That was the last one we did. Where we, and at right, first and when it started, I was like, ah, I don't get it. And then by the end, I felt like I was on acid the entire time. I was yeah. like, what is happening? <laughs> and that's a perfect example of something that you will never see that anywhere, anywhere else. I promise you, you will not see a film print of Godzilla projected anywhere. But all this crazy stuff, you would think, like, Jesus, I saw Hellraiser 2 opening weekend. I saw it at the Deptford 8 movie theater. It exists. It's on film somewhere, and yet we've, we've called everybody. We've talked to distributors. We've, I, I remember I was really close for a while. I was talking to a, a theater in Germany. They said they had a print of it, but it was only a German language print. I'm like, I don't care. I'll subtitle it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And then they couldn't get a hold of it. You would think. I mean, it came out. It played nationally. It wasn't a huge release, but I'm sure that there were multiple prints of it. You would think, why that of all movies? But you're yeah. right, here we are still 24, 24 years later, and that's the one. And I love the movie, but it's not even like it's the the greatest horror movie ever. I love it, but there are better horror movies and bigger horror movies, and we've probably shown them. But because that movie is so elusive, that's become my Moby Dick. You know, that's the one. I'm going to Drag everybody to hell trying to find it. It's so strange, too, not to kind of beat, beat this one into the ground, but it's like there are Blu-rays out there of it. And, like, to create a 2K or a 4K scan, you usually have to have either a 35-millimeter print, the interpositive, or the negative. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so you know those things are out there. Where is Arrow in places like this getting them that you can't show the movie? <laughs> Well, believe me that we've talked to all, of the, we've talked to Arrow and all. Of the, I, I think in some cases, a lot of it, right, it's coming from, um, you know, it's coming from the, the interpositive or it's coming from a film negative, nothing that we could project. Right. If, if it were being a, if it was a transfer of a 35 print, then obviously that print exists somewhere. But if it's, if it's the negative of the film, then that does us no good. Yeah. Now, 
Can you talk a little bit, because one of, one of the fun things that I found being kind of a longtime fan of, of your guys is in attending your shows is that it became, to bring it back to kind of like a, a, an analog culture thing, is mm-hmm. that it became almost like a tour of the area theaters because you guys jumped so much because you went from the Harwin to there was one, it was like a multiplex that you did, but yep. then there was the Broadway theater, which yeah. good Lord, that was, that I, was the place to see movies, man. It was, I mean, we, we were the kiss of death. We were the, <laughs> the Ringu of, of film, you know, basically if you, took us on you were guaranteed that sooner or later your theater would would be would be burned to the ground or would be shut down because once we right we would go to from theater to theater and eventually they would all go out of business the only people who were willing to take us on were the ones who needed the money and who would value a couple hundred extra bucks every every month or so so right we started at the harwin theater and we were there for i believe about two years before they were still open by the time we left, but we saw the writing on the wall that they were winding down. So we sort of wanted to find new footing before they closed. So we went from there to the Hoyts Theater. It was at Hoyts Multiplex in Pensacola, New Jersey. They were down the street from a more lucrative Lowe's movie theater. And the deal with them was there was apparently like a no compete contract clause where they were too close together. And if one theater had the rights to the movie, the other theater couldn't show the same movie within a certain number of miles. So inevitably the Lowe's, which is the bigger chain, would get all the top tier stuff. And from the get-go, the Hoyts kind of became by default, almost like a second run movie theater because they could only get the movies that nobody really wanted to see, but were kind of floating out there. I remember Jawbreaker, the the movie about the girls, the the crime movie. Because that played there, and just stuff that was just a little B tier. So they happily took us on. We were there for three years, and then they shut down. And we went from and there that's to the where Broadway you guys theater. Did, uh, you did an Evil Dead marathon, if my we memory did. is correct. There, yeah. that's correct. In I think in two thousand, yeah. and that was right. That was another sort of big moment for us. We managed. We had already done Evil Dead two multiple times by that point you but we had animal show up one time we did that's right that's a crazy story that was sort of our that was sort of our first big i felt like our coming of age moment where we had really gone beyond just a couple of idiots doing movies and holy shit bruce campbell is willing to come to our theater and do a show with us yeah that's that's a whole separate podcast episode to itself but right so we had done that movie a couple of times but we hadn't managed to track down the other films, the first Evil Dead or, or Army of Darkness. And we found a guy who had both of them. And we said, we'll fly you out, bring the movies. We'll put you up in the hotel. We'll take you out to dinner. And we paid Universal for the rights to the one. I forget who had the rights to Evil Dead at that point. But we, that was the first time that we showed all three of those movies back to back. And that was our first sort of step. Our, that was really our, we had done maybe three movies before. But that was kind of our first stepping stone towards a marathon. It was shortly after that that we did our first Italian horror all-nighter at the Hoyts Theater, where we showed, and I don't even remember what the first five were, but we showed five Italian horror films back-to-back. I know Barrow Ground was in the mix. I feel like um, Zader, 
the what's what's that uh revenge of the dead yeah and they weren't all zombie movies there was a couple zombie movies we showed i think beyond the door maybe and that was what would eventually become the argument for going be, going even further we had done five movies in a row it was a dawn till dusk show yeah and then later down the road once we got to the international house i remember harry and i made the argument for we should try 24 hours and we said hey we did five movies that worked why not 15 what the hell what's the difference between five and 15 and a lot of smells that's the difference yeah well yes Uh, (laughs) a lot of smells and a a lot of money a big difference there a a lot of headaches a lot of joy though too oh yeah yeah like um the the 24-hour horror thought well one of the things that you used to say in your announcements before it that i loved is that you 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 said it basically was like your christmas you know and that's Mm -hmm. how i felt every year going to it too because it was just to explain to the people at home who don't know like the 24-hour horror would be you would hand out a schedule it would have the vaguest clues imaginable um and then uh you would basically just roll the movies from noon until noon the next day, roughly, you know, depending on run times. Um, but it was, it was like showing up and not knowing what presents you were going to get every year because like you would get anything from the original Hellraiser or Halloween or like, uh, I remember Nightmare on Elm Street 3 kicking off one year, but then you would get, fucking teenage mother or boarding house at like three in the morning where you felt like you were hallucinating films or uh, some of my personal favorites like the one year you guys did an entire run of um stuff you've never shown before which resulted in night warning and uh raw force stuff like that yeah so anyway, that's yeah. my, my right. kind of trip down memory. Yeah. I, I think that the, the horathons for me, and I'm sorry, Jake, if you were breaking up a little bit there, I heard you. I don't know if you can hear me. Objectively. Sure. No, okay. I can't. Good. Um, you're absolutely right. I think that for me, the joy of the horathon was people not knowing what to expect and what they were going to get. And I think, that was the key to the success of the the horathon. If we had said, we're going to show 14 movies and here they are, here's what you can expect to see. I don't know that we would have had the same reaction from audiences because people would pick and choose. They would look at the show and say, eh, I've seen that one. Nah, I don't really love that movie. I don't know what this one is. And I don't think people would come. But when you tell people, we're going to show you 14 crazy movies and you have no idea what they are, you start to build your own expectations of what it could be and what you hope it will be and what you might get and what you couldn't imagine will possibly happen. And admittedly, part of the danger of that is people leaving disappointed, but I feel pretty comfortable and confident that over 13 years of doing it, yes, some years are better than others, some movies are better than others, but I don't really, we haven't really gotten a lot of feedback of this was a complete waste of my time. 
that right. you might say, eh, I, I really hated that movie. But that one that came after it was crazy. That with 14 films or 15 films, you're bound to discover something that you've never heard of, that you've never seen before, that just knocks you for a loop. Or I, you, you can never please people. And we would get a lot of feedback of every year, you show too many popular movies at the Harathon, show more rare shit. And then the other guy who says, you show too much rare shit, show me more popular movies. So I, I, I've acknowledged that we'll never please everybody, but I at least felt that over the years, we did a good job of balancing stuff that you know and love with things that you would never ever expect to see with stuff that you didn't even know was out there that we sure. might need to be aware of. Now, how not to give away too many secrets or how the sausage is made, let's say, uh, but how did you, how would you go about planning them? Cause you always, the one thing I know that you said that you would always try to keep it upbeat, but how would you like actually plan a, a lineup of 15 movies? We would usually go out to dinner and we would, the four of us would go and get drunk, not drunk to the point where we're not making rational decisions, but it was always good. We would go to, to Monk's Cafe was one of our favorites in Philadelphia, which is a great Belgian beer uh, bar and restaurant. And we would basically go and each year the conversation would be, all right, what haven't we shown yet? And what can we get our hands on? And what are things that we love? And it was always, it was fun because it was always kind of a, I don't want to say a competition, not a competition, but it was always a negotiation. Some people, somebody would say, I love this movie and I want to show it. And the rest would say, I hate that movie. There's no way in hell we're showing that. <laughs> and then someone would say, come on, I really want to do it. We'd say, no. And then we would say, okay, you can show that, but then we need to show this instead or to balance it. And it, it was pretty much everyone coming together to champion the things that they loved. And it, it really was a lot of, mostly it would come down to things that we wanted to see things that we had never shown and that we wanted to, uh, to show to people. But even amongst ourselves, we don't always agree on things. And so we would have to debate and argue with each other. And it was a lot of concession. Fine, you can have that one if I can have this one. And you know, I would never say what was a Dan movie or a Harry movie or a Jesse movie. But ultimately, if you saw a giant monster movie, it was probably me saying, come on, we got to show this one. Uh, if you saw a really esoteric art film, it was probably Harry or Joseph, you know, and if you saw, um, Jesse was already, let's see, what's Jesse partial? Jesse loves definitely, well, Phantom of the Paradise. That's a, that's a, Jesse loves, if we could show Phantom of the Paradise every year, uh, that would be Jesse's pick. And the year we showed it, it was him saying, we got to do this one. I love it so much. So that's pretty much how we would pick them. And another important thing to note, which I'm sure you know and have noticed over the years, is that one of the rules we set for ourselves as a challenge is that we would never repeat a film from a previous horathon. Yeah. So, so we showed, we did 13 horathons and in all of those years, we never showed a movie that we had shown before at a previous horathon. Now, we would show films that we had done at a previous double feature, maybe. Obviously, we had shown 
Hellraiser before or Halloween before. But once it ran at a horathon, that was it. We're not ever going to show it again at a horathon. So you can see the challenge when you get to year 13 of if we're doing 14 or 15 movies a year. All right, we've already shown 150 films for the horathon. What's left? And <laughs> I, I, I would say to your audience, if you can think of a major horror film from the last 40 years, we probably played it at a horathon. If it was a Romero film, if it was a Carpenter film, a Wes Craven film, we've probably shown it. So it gets to the point where, and I don't want to say the later horathons were, were worse, but they were harder to program because sure. we had already run through some of the most obvious and the most popular stuff. Now, I know this is probably an unanswerable question, especially with COVID and everything, but we'll kind of get to that later. Uh, but is the horathon dead? Like for good? I, I hope not. Yeah, me too. I, I really hope not. I, I will tell you that, again, I, I know we've said this 19 times, but for people who don't know, our, our, when we, right before COVID happened, we had lost our longtime venue. We had been at the International House in Philadelphia for 12 years, I think, from 2005 till 2019. That's more yeah. than, that was that 14 years? It was Whatever a while, is. yeah. It was a while. We'd been there a long time. And International House was a student dormitory, part of the, it was on the UPenn and Drexel University campus that had a, a great, wonderful screening room who were willing to let us show whatever we wanted to show. We could never have done a horathon, I'm sure, if it weren't for International House entertaining this idea of, yeah, let's let people stay here for 24 hours. Let's get a projectionist who's willing to work for 24 hours to keep running these movies or, you know, two or three projectors who would come in and shifts. When right before COVID happened at the end of 2019, the international house was sold and it was sold to become, I don't even know what it is now. It's probably nothing yet because COVID shut everything down, but they were going to, they were going to sell the property. It was no longer going to be student housing. It was going to be something else. So we were out of a home, but we had been negotiating and talking to other venues in particular about bringing back the horathon. And then of course, COVID came and the world ended. And so we have to wait until, until stuff comes back to relative normalcy. But my hope is that if there's a point when we get back to a world where you can put more than 20 or 30 or 40 people in a movie theater together, that I think in the same way that people say there's gonna be a roaring 20s again, that there's gonna be such an outpouring of joy and decadence and whatever you want to call it in response to these couple years of pandemic once it's wiped out i think you're going to see the same thing with cinema i think you're going to see such a huge resurgence of interest and celebration of and participation in that experience that has been lost so i would hope that in some capacity or another the horathon will continue to exist. We'll just have to, to wait and see what those spaces are and how many more years it takes us to get to that point. I don't think there's a there's much fun in having a horathon with five or 10 or 15 people together in the theater. No, I'd agree. But I mean, you are echoing something that I, I've kind of had a discussion with other people too, is that once COVID is over, 
you should almost save your money now to invest in mm. like public spaces because yeah. like people are going to come out in droves. They're going to what like that pent up demand is going to be there, which brings me to one question is that you guys were developing your own venue, the space, yes. um, but it's still being built, correct? It is. Absolutely. Uh, Harry from Zoom Films purchased a, a, a space. It was at one point in time, it was a hardware store, but he has purchased it and he is converting it into a, a theater space. It is called The Space. It's located in Bounty from New Jersey, literally two blocks away from where the Harwin Theater once stood. Our first home, the Harwin Theater, has since been torn down and replaced with a Walgreens drugstore. So in sort of a, a fuck you to, you know, the, the drive of society to tear down theater spaces, Harry's plan is to erect a new theater space in the same town where we first started. And COVID has obviously put a, a, a slow, put, put, put the brakes on a lot of the progress that has been made because for a year or so it was tough to get contractors and so on, but work is still ongoing and barring COVID being a, a long time thing, hopefully within the next year or so, the space will be open to the public and the space is going to be a screening room. There'll be two screening rooms located in, in the facility as well as, and this is, for your audience purposes, understanding the importance of this venue. The space existed and it was purchased by Harry and created to provide room for his collection. Harry's film collection had grown so large that it was not just occupying every square inch of his basement in his home, but also he had two different, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. What do you call them? Uh, rental spaces, uh, storage spaces. Storage units storage units that were filled wall to wall with film prints. I'm sure our audience realizes 35 millimeter film prints are pretty big. They're massive, you know, big boxes. So the space the, that Harry purchased has the huge downstairs basement level, which Harry's taken great pains to waterproof and to climate control and is now the housing for all of his films. So his films, thousands of movies are now located in this venue and that's the basement level the main level is going to be the theater space and the theater space has already been built the seating's not in yet but the the tiered um stadium seating has been put in the projection booth has been built and it'll be equipped for 35 millimeter 16 millimeter and digital projection if that weren't enough adjacent to the main screen and again there's two different screening rooms one I, i'm not sure the exact final seating but one the larger room will be about 100 seats and then a smaller space will be about i think 50 or 60 seats so you could theoretically have two different events going on at the same time he also has an adjacent building which also came with the property which is going to be an arcade so it will be a, a classic arcade uh pinball machine space as well so that you can come watch movies watch classic films play classic games and just so people understand this isn't a pipe dream the building exists 
It's under construction. The games exist. Harry has all the, the, the arcade machines. He has the pinball machines. He has the projectors. This isn't just, we're hoping for this to happen. It has been, a, I, I was at the council meeting with Harry. We've gotten it approved by the township. So it, it will happen. And it was going full force until COVID. But I've also said to Harry, you know what? Not only are people going to be more willing to go to movies than ever before, I wouldn't be shocked if because of the sort of dearth of content for a while, the fact that people aren't making and releasing big budget films, that there is going to be a real resurgence in interest in repertory and classic cinema. And I think the space is going to really become a, a, a really valued space, forgive the pun, for cinema in, in the Philadelphia and the, the New Jersey area. Yeah. It's weird. It's, it's tough to say that COVID could almost become a blessing in disguise, but it really could for, could. for repertory cinema. I yeah. think it really could. But I, it is funny that you keep bringing up Harry's collection is that one <laughs> of the things that I noticed, especially after moving to Austin for, you know, the better part of the last, last decade now is that I would go to the draft house for, Terror Tuesday, Weird Wednesday, some of their one-off screenings here and there. But I would see prints that I had seen before <laughs> up north, and I would be like, "That I'm pretty sure that that's Harry's print. Like, I even know certain cigarette burns and shit. Yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> Ch chances are, if you have gone to repertory cult genre film screenings on 35mm over the last 20 years, chances are good that either it came from Harry's collection or wherever it originally came from, it now lives in Harry's collection. Yeah. So that when, you know, when the major studios are trying to do retrospectives of their films, they will contact Harry to say, yeah. we need to show this movie. We don't have a print. Do you have one? So, and not name dropping, but Harry has built a great relationship with Quentin Tarantino, who of course, prior to COVID had run the new Beverly. So whenever Tarantino would be, not he himself, but when the new Beverly cinema would be running programming, a great deal of that programming came from Harry's collection. And it's worked out to our benefit in that over the years, Tarantino has been a big supporter of our shows. And if you've come to a horathon, chances are good that every horathon, two or more movies that you're seeing are from Quentin Tarantino's collection. And I'm proud to say that a lot of the Kaiju films, he's a big giant monster fan. So if you came to the Harathon and you saw Goliathon or Rodan, these, these are giant monster movies that came from Quentin's collection. Well, and you also did the three night showing in Philadelphia back when it was harder to see, uh, you showed the whole bloody affair on the original can print. Yeah, I'm pretty, we're pretty proud of that. The, yeah. the, the original theatrical, not theatrical, the original 35 print, complete print of Kill Bill back when it was one movie, to my knowledge, has only played in, it played at the Cannes Film Festival. I think it played at Coachella. That might be right. It, I think it played at Coachella. I don't know who watched it there, but <laughs> it, played at, it played at Coachella one year. Someone on a ton of ecstasy. Right. <laughs> it's probably played the new Beverly, I'm sure. Yeah. But other than that, I think we're the only 
other group to have, who have ever shown it. And that came from Quentin and Harry would go back and forth and kind of uh, trade emails about films that they had come across. And Harry had shared a movie and Quentin was very, very interested in, in getting a print of the film. And part of the, I want to call it negotiation, but part of the discussion was, hey, I'd be happy to help you. Is there any chance we could show this print of yours? And, and that's really how it came about. So it wasn't a business deal. It was really much more just a couple of film fans talking about how can we help each other out? Well, and that's kind of like the, it, it's one of the cool things about Exhume films that I've loved over the years is that kind of like you said, is that the profit was almost like, not a happy accident. That's not the phrase I'm looking for, but almost like, almost like a nice bonus. Like you guys more or less built a community of folks that were empowered to see these movies and hang out together and find each other just because you were one day were like, do you think we could show these? You know, <laughs> which I mean, is kind of great. It's, it's all about this weird, again, old school camaraderie of like bonding in a public space over these things that you love. I, I think that it, it, again, it comes back to sort of that punk rock ethos of helping each other and building our own community. And Grindhouse releasing was huge in terms of us doing our first show. The fact that they were willing to lend movies to us for really next to no money was, was great. Um, we actually met Quentin Tarantino years and years and years ago in Austin at one of his QT fests and just talking to him and he had shown a print of Lucio Fulci's The Psychic at one of his marathons. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to him and saying, is there ever any chance that we could rent that from you? And he was, oh yeah, sure, sure. Here's my number. Here's my, and thinking, whatever, he's just blowing us off, but actually coming through and loaning us this movie. And we said, if we could ever help you out. And that's sort of where that relationship grew. And over the years, people have come to us and said, hey, why don't you show an Exhumed film here in North Carolina? Why don't you do Exhumed shows here in Florida? And we would say, how about instead, why don't you do it? And not being an asshole, but like, you can do it. Yeah. You did it. You can do it. Here's how to, you, you want to know how to do it. Here's how you can get started. Here's what you should look into. And being able to sort of help other film groups and other programmers and other people who are in the same situation as us say that, look, this is possible. And if we can help you, we'll help you. Uh, that's one of the things that we've been proudest of is that community and that, I hate to use the cliche of paying it forward, but this idea of other people helped us kind of reach our goals if we can help you reach yours, great. Yeah. Now, I do want to ask you, I would be, I guess, remiss if I didn't ask you one specific story. <sighs> okay. You know what's coming. I guess I do. Asia. Go ahead. I fucking knew it. Asia. <laughs> Can you, but it's actually a good story. <laughs> All right. I love, I love progressive rock. In addition, to, I, I was, I was a big, and it's funny because Joseph is the same way. Joseph Gervaisi and I from Exhume were both, when we were younger and still are, big fans of hardcore punk rock, but also big fans of progressive rock. So I loved growing up. I loved Yes and Genesis and Pink Floyd and, and King Crimson and bands like that. And as a kid, I loved the band Asia, which was, for, for those who don't know the band, um, made up of members formerly of The Buggles and Yes and King Crimson 
and ELP. So even though they were an 80s pop rock band, they were prog rock royalty. And in, gosh, what year was it? 2003. The band wasn't in great straits anymore. The, the band was pretty much held down, was down to pretty much just the singer and the keyboardist. Jeff Downs, who was the keyboardist for Yes in Asia, and The Buggles. The Buggles, right? Video Killed the Radio Star. And they were posting on their website, hey, they were doing sort of a DIY tour where it was just going to be the singer and, and the keyboardist. And if you give us, give us, for the, for the rate of $3,000, we'll come to your show. We'll play a show at your venue for 3000 bucks. And they were basically off the grid planning their own tour. It's just like a low-key kind of semi-acoustic tour. At the time, not, not to be a downer, my mother had uh, recently passed away of cancer in 2003. And in fact, it's like months before I saw this, a month before. And I, I was in the grieving process and I was sort of, you know, distracted and whatever. And I saw this as, I'm going to throw all my energy into this. And I went to the others and I said, listen, how about this? We get Asia to play at the Broadway theater, which was after the Hoyts closed down. The Broadway theater was a great old movie house that we had briefly talked about earlier. It had a balcony, it had a balcony seating. It seated, I think, like 500, 600 people. It was an old vaudeville theater. We're going to get Asia, or at least the singer and keyboardist of Asia, to play. And the others kind of said, I don't know. And I said, <laughs> my mother just died. And I played the total, like the guilt card. I'm like, my mom died. Give me this. We're going to get Asia to play. It's going to be awesome. And they said, fine, we'll get Asia to play. And we did a show and we showed and because we're exhumed films and we needed the film piece, I'm like, it's going to be a rock and roll night. And we're going to show, we showed Valley Girl, the Nicolas Cage movie. We're going to show Valley Girl and then follow it up with Asia, with a, a, a heat of the moment and only time will tell. The biggest selling record of 1982, I will have you know, was Asia's debut album. And we did it and we planned it and we advertised it and we sold the hell out of it. And nobody came. No. Nobody came to, well, I'll qualify. Not nobody, but definitely fewer people than we needed to break even on having Asia. And yet, I regret nothing because <laughs> I got to see Asia. I had dinner with Asia. I drove Asia around in my Saturn. <laughs> I got drunk with Asia. I, it's, it's, I'm like, I don't care. And ultimately, we're, it didn't bankrupt us. We're still here. We're still doing shows. Clearly, we survived it. Did we lose a couple thousand dollars? Maybe. And yet, it's an experience that here, 20 years later, we're still talking about. So it, it's definitely a, a moment in our history. Was it our proudest moment? Maybe not financially. But in terms of sheer kind of ridiculous, you know, hubris or whatever, <laughs> me thinking, sure, the kids love Asia. Everybody's going to come see Asia. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. The legacy of that show, for me personally. You weren't that, there, were you? I was not. You no, were not. I'm, I'm not fucking you're, lie you're part of the problem. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. I, I have carried your announcements at the Broadway uh, leading up to Asia, because I remember getting the flyer and looking at it and going, 
what the fuck? Not for and then, but you, you, you literally would go, Man. we're having Asia. Fucking Asia. Just like that at the microphone. And now every time I hear Asia from that point on, and I'm in my early right. 20s when that occurred, and now I'm close to being in my 40s. Every time I hear Asia on, on the radio, right. in a restaurant or whatever, I hear fucking Asia in my head. And you know what? A 40-year-old virgin came out and prominently featured Asia. It's and then true. Asia, they, it was like they blew up again. Like, Damn it. That movie came out like two years after our show. Like if that movie had come out first, if that movie came out first, we probably couldn't have booked Asia. But yeah. it, it gave me at least some sense of justification that see now people get it it just took judd apatow to put them in a movie to remind the world that asia's fucking awesome now i've got i've got my signed asia record over here my you can't see it but there's my record collection and somewhere buried in there is my jeff downs and john payne signed copy of the album i'm sorry go ahead no it's fine <laughs> why I, I asked for the story um but uh last thing before we go Sure. Uh, let's, let's talk real quick um, just where people can find you now because as you said it as we were trading emails to set this up you're you're kind of in the off season because exhume film still lives it's just Absolutely. at the drive-in yes because of everything that's been going on we actually had one of our ironically one of our biggest years ever in terms of attendance and you know if you want to break down how many people have come to an exhumed film screening we've probably shown more movies to more people than ever in 2020 we are at right now we are doing screenings at the mahoning drive-in in Lehighton, pennsylvania which is the poconos area mm -hmm. for folks who know the east coast it is approximately probably 90 minutes from both Philadelphia and separately from New York City coming from different directions obviously but it takes about an hour and a half to get there from Philly or from New York and we've been working with them for years we've been doing shows through the summers at the drive-in since gosh maybe um, 2013 or 2014 somewhere around there but as you know and as you can imagine with the pandemic drive-ins had a huge resurgence this past year and as far as exhumed film shows we went from showing maybe just two or three film not films but two or three weekends per per summer to we started um basically doing every tuesday night throughout the summer doing a, a tuesday night screening and then probably six or seven or more weekend shows or between May and November. So the season starts in April. And our first our first screening at the drive-in this year, I'm very happy to announce, is uh, it's one of our Tuesday night screenings. It's Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla. So we're starting off with a kaiju film. I'm one of my favorites. And every Tuesday night from right now, the plan is from April through the fall, through October we'll be showing stuff from the Exhumed Films archive. Just a single movie, but then every year we do, we have big shows that we do every year. We've done for the last several years. The, we do Zombiethon, which is Memorial Day weekend, a three-day marathon of zombie movies. 
every year we do a show called Schlockerama, which is a quintessential drive-in show where we show 50s and 60s schlocky monster movies and stuff that you would have seen in the drive-in back in the heyday. We do probably our biggest event of the year is Camp Blood, which every year is a two or three day marathon of slasher films. And this past year, because you couldn't have conventions, you couldn't have a lot of retro screenings inside, we got a lot of interest, not just from audience members, but from celebrities. So this past year we hosted, we did a show with Bruce Campbell again for the first time in a long time. We did the Bruce Campbell Keep Your Distance Tour, where we did two nights with Bruce Campbell at the drive-in, doing a Q&A, taking photos, socially distanced photos of people. And we showed all the Evil Dead movies, plus films like, gosh, what else did we show? We showed Bubba Hotep, we showed My Name is Bruce, and we showed Moontrap. We did, for our Camp Blood show, we had, um, we showed Sleepaway Camp, and we had Phyllis Rose from Sleepaway Camp out. In the fall, we did Freddy Fest, which is a marathon of Freddy Krueger and related films. So we showed Shocker and other Wes Craven stuff. We had some of the stars of Elm Street 2 and Elm Street 4 out. And then we, our last film of the season was we did Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 with Bill Mosley. So folks who would normally do the convention circuit without that option this past year really came out to the drive-in. And it was, like I said, one of our biggest years, even though you wouldn't see us in a theater, you could see us outdoors. And we're hoping for obviously an end to the pandemic and the ability to go back indoors. But for the time being, we're happy to be partnered with the Mahoning Drive-In once again, and we'll be doing a lot of stuff there. Hey, as long as you guys keep doing it, I'm glad because I'm eventually gonna fly out and get there. Well, not fly now, but drive probably. Yeah, probably better bet. Yeah, uh, but drive out because I wanna go to do your, your drive-in shows were killing me all this past year, especially during COVID when I was like locked in and I was right. just like, I would pay anything to be able to basically just drive out there and do it. So I'm hoping this year to make it. But uh, Dan, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to talk to you. And, and let me just end up really quickly by saying, uh, I, I've always been very humbled and flattered by the the amount of, writing and the amount of positivity you, you have sent Exhumed's way. I know that you've written a number of articles about our shows and for Birth Movies Death and other places. And I always feel like you're somebody who really, really gets what we've done. I really want to thank you and appreciate, show you, just tell you how much we appreciate the way that you have celebrated and supported us over the years. Hey man, I, I, I gotta spread the love because I mean like, you got you got to let other people know that your teachers are they're they're good people, man. So like, I want you guys to just keep going until we're all old and can't see anymore. <laughs> until we're all old, right? We're already there. Some of us are already there. Hey, well, <laughs> I, I I wonder when the point comes when I'm like, you know what? It's it's not cool anymore for me to be whatever a sixty year old guy showing twenty year olds movies. So we'll we'll have to see like like when Tarantino says he's got a he's only maybe got one or two more films in him. I, I always wonder like. At what point do we say, okay, we're not cool. We're, we're too old now. We'll let somebody else do it. But hopefully that's at least a few more years away. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> but again, thanks, Dan. Uh, Thank you, Jacob. You anytime, and I'll see you soon. Awesome. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
って